Would you join with me one more time as we pray and ask God's blessing on his word? Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, it is with this hope that you will be faithful to your promises and bless your word preached that we might receive the power and blessings of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would transform us, that you would convict us of sin and lead us to repentance, for in that experience is true joy. We want to see Jesus. We want to see him high. We want to see him lifted up. We want to see him as a great savior for great sinners like us. And so draw us to see him. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, God makes flowers grow in the desert. We saw that last week from Isaiah 41. He's the redeemer, which oftentimes throughout the scriptures means he's the God who frees his people, frees them from oppression. He's the God, the redeemer, who puts broken things back together. And that's the theme that we're going to be carrying Um, We began last week, and we're going to be carrying it through our study in this new book, the book of Exodus. If you're visiting with us, we regularly preach through books of the Bible. Uh, We just finished uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and now we're beginning, which will probably be for the next uh, maybe, you know, nine months, might carry us through that long, a study on the book of Exodus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're probably even familiar with the basic story sketch of Exodus. Israel, God's people, are enslaved in Egypt. He takes them out, um, frees them through plagues, takes them through the Red Sea, and then brings them to Mount Sinai. That's the basic sketch. But Exodus is really chapter 2 of a story that began in the book of, of Genesis. See, the first five books of the Bible are written by Moses and are historically referred to, you might have heard this language as the Pentateuch, which is just Latin for five and the Latin word for book. The ancient Jews frequently called it the books of the law or the Torah. And Jesus himself frequently quotes from these first five books of the Bible and, uh, and ascribes authorship to Moses. He'll frequently say, and did Moses not say... And refer to it as God's word, quoting authoritatively from the pen of Moses in these first five books of the Bible. And the reason that this is, this is chapter two of a book, of a story that began all the way back in Genesis, is a, a little Hebrew letter that you can't see in your English translation that for some reason the English translators don't include. Because the book of Exodus actually starts in Hebrew, with the word and. And is a way that the Hebrew narrative ties stories together. In Genesis, Exodus chapter 1 really begins, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. 
frequently you'll see this in your Old Testament narrative as you're reading your Bible. You'll notice the word and shows up over and over and over again. A story might sound like this. And he left his home. And he went to his flocks. And he ran into his brothers. And the angel of the Lord shows up. And the reason we often include the ands in our English translation is to show us that this is one long story that goes together. This is a, a parts of a whole, and these parts go together, and, and, and the ancient Hebrews would use and to do so. For some reason, our English translators leave it out, I think, because we separate these into books. But the Exodus story, Moses is saying, really continues the Genesis story. What God had done in the book of Genesis is continued into the book of Exodus because as a theme that we'll see over and over again, this is really the entirety of the Bible. It really is one story. This is one story, one unfolding drama, one unfolding drama of God's plan to redeem his covenant people. One God, one promise, one people, one salvation. From Genesis 1 all the way through the end of the book of Revelation. And so keep that in mind. Right? One story that's unfolding. That finds its fullness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because that helps us find an answer to this question. What relevance is the book of Exodus to me today? How is a story that happened that occurred some 3,500 years ago. The events of Exodus take place right around 1500 BC. How does a story that happened 3,500 years ago apply to me today? Here's how. Keep this in mind. One story, one unfolding drama of God's plan to redeem his people. One God, one promise, one people, one salvation. The story of Exodus begins in Genesis but it does not reach its climax until Jesus Christ. And so these first five books of the Bible, of which Exodus is the second, is really the books of the origin story of Israel. Here's how an origin story functions. An origin story is a story that we tell to help us find our identity. So for instance, as a country, we love to tell the origin story of Washington crossing the Delaware in the dead of winter because it helps to reinforce our identity as Americans, as a resolute people who persevere um, through difficult things and rely on individual strength to make things happen. We tell our origin stories to help form our identity because we know this intuitively. History shapes identity. And so the Exodus, this book, is frequently quoted and referred back to by later writers of scripture as the identity for the people of Israel. Israel was God's people freed from slavery in Egypt. This forms their identity. But to understand this part of the origin story, Moses is taking us back by starting with and back to the story of Genesis. Now we can go all the way back to understand the roots of the book of Exodus. We could go all the way back to Genesis 1 to 3 to start that story, but let's not. Let's start with Abraham, because in verse 1, Moses reminds us that these were people in Egypt were the sons of Jacob. Verse 1, these are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own 
household. And then he quotes, and then he refers to the 11 sons of Jacob because Joseph, verse 6, um, or end of verse 5, Joseph was already in Egypt. The 12 sons of, of Jacob, what he's doing is he's taking us back. He's taking us back to the promise that God had made to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. And God had made a great promise to Abraham, and it went like this. I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. Kings will descend from you. And I will give you the promised land to be your place. God was going to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. But you see the contrast as we start Exodus 1. He's referring us back to these promises made to Abraham, but Israel was in Egypt, living in a kingdom of another. They had no king, no kingdom. They're living under the thumb of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But look what happens to Israel in Egypt in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God had kept his promise. God had kept his promise, even though the conditions were not right for Israel to prosper. God had kept his covenant. Israel multiplied greatly and grew exceedingly strong. God, the Redeemer, had made flowers grow in the desert. Conditions were not ripe. They were against Israel. But God's promises prevailed. Well, Abraham, this is the point. He's repeating this origin story back to them. Because you'll remember from Genesis that the promise was made to Abraham to make an exceedingly great nation while Abraham was without a son, old in life. And yet God makes flowers grow in the desert. While he was without a son, he took Abraham outside. He was well past childbearing age, well past child conceiving age. And he had taken him outside and said, can you count the number of the stars in the sky? If you could count them, your descendants will outnumber them. And three generations later, 70 people enter into Egypt. But while in Egypt, God kept his promises. Even though the conditions were not ripe for him to be faithful, they were pushing against him. Because of God's faithfulness, get this, 70 enter By the time of the Exodus, we're told 600,000 men of fighting age left in the Exodus. Now, the census was just for fighting age men. So if you include older men, younger men, women and children, you're looking at a country of over 2.5 million people when they left. God had kept his promise, even though the conditions were not ripe for him to do so because God is always faithful and his promises always ripen but they don't always ripen quickly the book of Genesis ends chapter 1 with this very stark statement in Hebrew talking about Joseph's bones it ends with this stark statement in Egypt now remember Exodus 1 begins with this phrase, and these were the sons. Joseph, uh, Moses is combining these two together. It's like he's not even skipping a beat. They're in Egypt. Oh, that's, 
that seems to be such a terrible end to the story of Genesis. God's promises must have failed. Moses just picks up, doesn't skip a beat. And these were the sons that were in Egypt. But here's the point. Between Genesis end and Exodus beginning, 400 years had elapsed. Let me give you some perspective. It takes God a while to ripen his promises. 400 years ago, not only did we not exist as a nation, the Europeans were just starting to settle the new world. Jamestown was the first English settlement 400 years ago. It's a long time for God's people to wait for God's promises to ripen. But you see, God had promised this delay. Back to his experience with Abraham when the promise was made, Abraham had himself experienced the delay of God's promises, waiting a while for them to ripen. Years prior, God had made Abraham a promise that descendants, a kingdom would come from his descendants. He's still barren without a son. Well, how will this happen? And so his faith, because of the time it takes for God's promises to ripen, his faith is full of doubts. Where are you? Have you forgotten me? What's going on? Have your promises failed? And so God comes to him in the deep of the night. If you have doubting faith, notice this pattern. God draws near to those who have doubting faith. Faith, he blesses, but faith is not without doubts or questions. To trust in God, to entrust yourself to his care, to his promises, doesn't mean that there's an absence of questions. Sometimes it just means there, there are even more questions. But notice what he does for Abraham when he was full of doubts. He puts him into a deep sleep and makes a ceremony to confirm his promises. He has Abraham cut animals and lay out two pieces, one to the left and one to a right. It was an ancient way of making a covenant. And then God walks through the pieces and essentially saying, May, if I don't keep my promises to you, Abraham, may I be cut in half like these animals are. He's calling curses down on himself. He's committed his very being. God would have to cease to be God, he's saying, in order for, for me to not keep these promises. He's committing his entire being to these promises. And in the midst of that ceremony, he says, know for certain that your offspring will be, right? Know for certain you'll have offspring. It's going to take a time for them to ripen. And here's what's going to happen in the near immediate time. Your offspring will be sojourners in the land that's not theirs, and there'll be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But there's always the great hope of the gospel. It always starts with bad news, always, always transitions with but God, and then ends with good news. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. He had he'd foretold them what's going to happen. My promises will ripen in the meantime. Expect suffering. Sometimes, oftentimes, oftentimes, it does take a while for God's promises to ripen. There's often always maybe a delay between what God says he will do and what he actually does. And this is why an origin story is so important. It guides us through the difficult and dangerous times. It takes us through the desert. It gives us a point of reference. God has said, 
Well, what about right now? What's going on right now? I can look back at my origin story. This is who I am. It often takes time for God's promises to ripen, but He's still present in those times. And you see the history creates identity. This is so true for us in Christ. Our origin story, we can place ourselves in this story. right? In Christ, we've inherited this story as our own. We've been grafted into this story. One God, one story, one plan, one people, one salvation. A story that starts with God's promises to Adam and Eve, begins to grow in the story of the Exodus, but it reaches its full fruit in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And just as Israel was having to look back during their time of trial at the who they were because of what God had done in saving them, so too, if you are in Christ, we look back, history creates identity. And if you're in Christ, your history is not what's happened to you in the past in your life, your history now, all of those things are now overshadowed by what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. And this is the story we tell ourselves every Sunday, isn't it? This is one of the reasons we gather together. Because, as I often say, we're gospel sieves. It just, we forget. We forget who we are. We get defined by the things we've done and the things we've done to us. And we've forgotten that's not our story. It's just a little chapter. It's not the whole And so we get together every Sunday, we retell the story, the story of God's faithfulness, the story of the work of Jesus Christ, the story of God's bearing our sin at the cross, the story of the resurrection of Jesus. We sing it in our songs so that we can sing it throughout the week. Now you don't come in here, we don't come in here just so sure, but we should leave here with assurance that God is faithful even when we're not faithful faithful ourselves so the faithfulness of God ripening over time had created a problem for Pharaoh king of Egypt because now Israel was a threat while there are just 70 people sojourning in Egypt not that big of a deal but now if Pharaoh looks out and it's an entire nation and now he's worried now there arose verse 8 A new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. I mean, just stop and hear what God had done. This little destitute people in in a context that was not ripe for them to grow had grown too many and too mighty. And so Pharaoh says, come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us to escape from the land. And so Pharaoh begins to oppress Israel, and his oppression escalates throughout the entirety of the chapter. He initially tries to enslave them, to afflict them with heavy burdens. He makes them build his store cities of Pitom and Ramses. But Israel grew because God's promises ripened in the desert. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So Pharaoh steps up his oppression. They ruthlessly make the people work as slaves. And that word ruthlessly is repeated twice in verse 13 and 14. To make the point of how difficult their oppression had become. 
and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in the field, verse 14. But Israel grew because God was growing flowers in the desert because he's always faithful to his promises. And then, then Pharaoh decides there's so much at risk, the only way to deal with Israel is to kill them off. And so he commits to a plan of genocide. And he says to the Israel midwives, he calls two of them in and says to them, look, this is what you're going to do. When a, when a Hebrew gives birth, we want you to kill the son. You can let the, the women live. They're not a threat in times of war, but we need you to kill the sons. And Pharaoh gets thwarted by the midwives. They rebel against his evil intentions. And Israel grew. And so Pharaoh escalates it one more time in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He enlists the entirety of Egypt. This is the way the chapter ends. It sort of leaves us hanging. What's going to happen now to the people of Israel? Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And you see what's playing out is an age-old conflict that goes way, way back. All the way back to the garden. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God cursed Satan, the serpent, and promised him an epic conflict between God's covenant people and the seed of the serpent. And it's playing out here in Exodus chapter 1. This is part of our origin story too. There will always be conflict between the world and God's covenant people. There's a hidden story that's playing out in real time. It's a story of conflict and victory. Now remember, this is one story, one God, one covenant people, one plan of redemption. And so we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2. Herod, another king of this world, heard that God had been faithful to his promise. And the king that had been promising for so long finally ripened and had come in Jesus Christ. And so Herod sets out to destroy the threat to his kingdom by killing every male child who was two years old or younger. And this is the point of Exodus 1 and Matthew 2. Amidst the conflict is a story of conflict and victory. God always wins. He protects, he preserves his people amidst the conflict of this world, the conflict that came to a climax at the cross The kingdom of darkness had infiltrated Jesus' own camp and Satan enters. Judas, one of Jesus' own disciples, betrays him into the hands of the Jews who then hand him over to the Romans who kill the Son of God by hanging him in shame on the cruelest torture device ever devised by mankind. Conflict and victory. God always wins. The Son was raised from the dead and is seated on the throne of heaven. God always wins. And it shows up in three different ways in this chapter. Verse 7, even though they were in Egypt, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 12, the conflict escalates. God always wins. 
even though Pharaoh had enslaved them to build his store cities. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now it escalates every more. Conflict and victory. God always wins. Even though the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh by refusing to kill the male children. Verse 20. God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. So the conflict between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God always has this conclusion. God wins. It's not a conflict between equals. This is not good and evil in conflict as two distinct powers. This is like a seven-year-old slapping his father in the face. It's conflict, but it's not a conflict of equals. The father may show patience by not putting forth all of his force at one time, but eventually there will come a day of reckoning and the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ is the final verdict of God where he crushes the serpent's head. The darkest hour showed the greatest light of God's winning grace. And when the kingdom of this world grew to its most evil self, God was conspiring to prosper his people. The enemy was looking to destroy God, but God took the final blow to his son to gain victory for his people. And because God always wins... Your sins are forgiven. Because God always wins, you're an adopted child in God's house. Because God always wins, you will gain victory over sin's power in your life. might be conflict, but it's not a story of conflict. It's a story of conflict and God's victory in Jesus Christ. Because God always wins, there will be a day when Jesus returns with the new heaven and new earth. And on that day, the conflict will come to a decisive end. The evil one will be thrown into the lake of fire and there will be no more tears or struggle anymore. Just a new heavens and a new earth where the peace of God and the joy of God reign forever and ever and ever. And there will be no more conflict because God always wins. And so, because God always wins, it is always wise to bank on God's promises. So if you're not a Christian, you need to ask yourself, which side am I on? Where do you find yourself in this story? Are you on the side of the rebel or the side of the son? The question is, am I in Christ? Or am I against Christ? But if you're in Christ, you can confidently bank on the gracious power of God to deliver and provide. Now, that does not mean just sitting back and resting. But it means to bank on the promises of God that he always wins. It might take time for the promises to ripen. When they ripen, you better watch out. God always wins. That means committing to a life of faithful obedience, even reckless obedience. See, the fact that God always wins, it means that he is in a position to reward the faithful. I mean, don't miss the building point of the narrative. The people were growing in the midst of opposition because God is a covenant-keeping God. His promises always ripen and come to fruition. But that means his people are to be a covenant-keeping people themselves. 
And the God who wins always rewards the faithful. See, Pharaoh is planning his genocide. But the Israel midwives decide to rebel against the evil that he's committing. They bank on God and his promises and they defy Pharaoh. They feared God. Not Pharaoh. He's just a man of this world. The story is, origin story, the story is victory amidst conflict. Therefore, I'll fear God. And I'll know he'll take care of Pharaoh. Verse 20. So God dwelt, dealt well with the midwives. Interestingly, that's the first time in Exodus chapter 1 that God shows up as an actor in the story to reward the faithful, costly obedience of the Hebrew midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. Here's a really interesting fact. We don't know for certain Um, who the Pharaoh is. Pharaoh just means king of Egypt. We don't know what particular Pharaoh this was. We're never told in the book of Exodus. Moses doesn't even name him. Historians have argued about where exactly we fall in the Pharaoh's reigns, but know this. There are two names. Pharaoh, the great king of Egypt, not recorded for perpetuity. We don't know who he is, but we do know this. Two faithful midwives are recorded. Shepra, are named and honored because for reckless obedience they were faithful to a God who is faithful to them. The story of Exodus will take us from freedom out of slavery to Egypt to freedom of obedience to God's law. We'll go from slavery in Egypt to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai where the freed people receive the law of perfect freedom. Grace doesn't mean no obedience. Our obedience never merits us favor with God. God's promises come to us in Jesus Christ by his free and gracious gift. No matter where you are or what you've come from, you can receive Christ today and be brought into this story and have God's faithfulness be your history forever and ever. But to receive his grace doesn't mean that there's no obedience. If you're a Christian, the Christian life is this constant test of allegiances. And see, Jesus promised us, this is part of our origin story too, the world hated me will hate you too. But if you remember your origin story, that's no big deal. Because you'll also remember in the midst of conflict, this is a story of conflict and victory. God always wins. So following Jesus will cost you time, energy, and money, or most costly commodities we have. It'll also cost us comfort, influence, and esteem. We will be put in situations where we will have to ask, am I going to trust and fear the God who rewards the faithful? Because he always wins. Or am I going to give in to the evil temptation from the world and from my own heart? And that's when you have to remember your origin story. If I am in Christ, I am no longer my own. I have been bought with the price of his blood. If I am in Christ, I have been given the Holy Spirit because of his death. History creates identity, a rooted identity creates a life of costly obedience because God always wins. 
and he always produces flowers in the desert. Let's pray. Father, as we have come to your word today, we've done so humbly. In our call to worship, you said, open your mouths and I will fill it. Oh, make our souls full on the victory of Jesus Christ. Help us to day in and day out when we wake or sleep. Be no longer defined by our failures or our successes, but on your faithfulness throughout all generations. And we ask this, in the midst of broken lives and a broken world and the conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we ask this, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring the final victory that's sure we're banking on. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.